Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. they do is talk No wedding ring, chip, fingernail polish She always wished that she could go to college But some dreams fade They just slip away She started the show A few months ago and she had to go
Sawate. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 152 for January MMXVIII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Beatlemania. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hold your breath, make a wish, count to three. Come with me and you'll see a world that's filled with Beatlemania. Hey everybody, this is Tim, one of the co-hosts of Beatlemania, the Blue Beetle podcast. Along with my co-host Jay, we're going to be bringing you everything Blue Beetle, from the Golden Age adventures of Dan Garrett to the Silver Age adventures of a different Dan Garrett to the more recent adventures of Ted Cord and Jaime Reyes. Trust us, we're keeping it blue on the SNG Podcast Network. Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, hello there. We are in 2018 now, which is pretty crazy to think about. I hope that you had a wonderful caffeine and coffee-free holiday. And why do I say this? Well, I say this because all of a sudden my Twitter feed has been exploding because people keep harassing me about coffee. Coffee! I don't know what it is about it, but people, I call it the devil's juice. And, you know, the reason why I call it the devil's juice is because they get hooked on it. It's sick. You know, the teachers, I I teach in the middle school wing and the teachers just, they can't go and teach their first class without that cup of coffee. Sometimes they're away to their classes because they need to get a cup of coffee. It's sick. One April Fool's, I stole the coffee maker and they were running around like little, I don't know, little mice, who knows, trying to figure out who took it, number one, and number two, how can I get my fix because it's not there. Any sort of thing that you have to rely on to that degree, I just don't think it's safe. I don't think it's safe. So I will always be anti-coffee. So there we go. But no, I honestly hope that you all had a wonderful and safe Christmas or whatever you celebrate. And of course, New Year's as well. Christmas for me basically was, I had kind of, I don't know, multiple Christmases it seemed. But I went home to my parents and now my brother who recently retired from 20 years of active service in the Navy is now a fireman. He, he just graduated and he's actually living five minutes away from my parents. And then my best friend that just got married is also living there. So now it's one-stop shopping because before I would go down there with my parents and then we'd have to go up to Annapolis because that's where my brother was stationed. So now it's all, it's all good. So we uh, spent time together and this year was interesting because my nephew built a house made of the gifts of the presents. He called it his present house. And 
this uh, this actually turned out really well because what happened was uh, someone would pick a gift and not necessarily for themselves. I don't think anyone actually did that until the end. Really, the gifts were for him. But one person would go up there and pick a gift for somebody else. That person would unwrap and then that person would go up and pick a gift for somebody else. And it actually turned out really nice and, and present unwrapping kept on for a while, which I think is, is always nice. For me... You know, my I feel like I'm pretty easy to buy for. So anything with moose or comics, you know, Batgirl, I've, I've got it made. I got the Lego Batman movie, uh, Batgirl Clock, which apparently my sister-in-law had been keeping for a while now, since like March or something like that. So now I have her on my desk. I've got a nice little clock there. Got a couple movies. Uh, I'm really excited about uh, the Emma Peel collection, specifically with... Uh, from the Avengers, specific and not the Marvel Avengers, but but anyway, specifically with Diana Rigg because that's something that I had really been wanting. I was on a Diana Rigg kick several years ago, and I kept researching to see if there was a collection, but there really wasn't any. And then my mom surprised me with this, which must have recently come out. So I'm looking forward to catching up with that and and seeing those episodes for the first time, and. Lots of ornaments. I like, you know, the Marvel ornaments, basically the superhero ornaments. The Looney Tunes are also ones that I collect, and then I get moose ornaments as well. So I got lots of ornaments. Got some moose t-shirts. Duck Duck Moose was a t-shirt that my mom got me. So basically it's very moon, moo, it's very moose based, I would say. And then I got a little fin hallmark, almost in competition with potentially pop. The pop figures have come up with these itty bitties, and they're really cute if you haven't seen them. And I've got f- how many itty bitties do I have? I have six itty bitties. Two of them are in my car. Batgirl and Spider Man are in my car. And then I have Negan because Negan was a really cute itty bitty. And Phasma, and I got Ray for my birthday, the Last Jedi Ray. And then for Christmas, Mom got me Finn because you know she didn't want Ray to be by herself. So now I can have little shipping, <laughs> shipping moments between Finn and Ray. So, no, it was lovely. I, I love being able to, to spend time with family. And then, you know, I usually come home a little bit earlier before New Year's just to sort of relax. And then I go over to my department chair's family, which, you know, Dina and Jacob and I have spoken of these people before. And I spend uh, time with them. And I feel like, you know, recently... Uh, I was slandered, I feel like, even though it was in front of me. But I'm blamed for, you know, ramping things up and getting everyone excited and apparently keeping it up there. And I bring Jacob along with me, and we just keep the heightened... Ex- I don't know. It's... I guess we're crazy, but don't don't you want a little craziness and fun on New Year's Eve? So, whatever. But I think this year we were doing a lot of the... Um, <laughs> the Yoda Siegel song and basically it, we were using the ooh-ah, ooh-ah-ah section as non-sequiturs and we were playing a game and then I would call out to Dina or something and then I would go, because you're an ooh-ah, ooh Yeah, I don't know. I guess you just have to know me for that. And final thing I want to talk about as an introduction, of course, is Star Wars The Last Jedi. I really enjoyed it. I probably laughed the most in this Star Wars film than I've ever laughed in any Star Wars film. Some of the aliens were super bizarre, I have to say, like that milking creature that you see. I mean, Luke just 
presses on its udder and you know out comes the the green milk and <laughs> then ray turns away very sheepishly or that sort of opera singer lady with like lots of bosoms in the casino scene and she goes oh but of course i was you know the porgs which are crazy and then the beautiful horse-like creatures I didn't see at all in any of the trailers and I was not expecting them and I thought oh how delightful and then of course my crystal foxes which were beautiful and darling and I'm so glad I got to hear them tink tink tinkling and (laughs) whoo yeah but no I you know I haven't read any of the criticisms I just hear that people didn't like it and I guess people just come in with these really high expectations because yes it is a Star Wars film but you know, I go in thinking, really, what can you do to make me not like a Star Wars film? So I I really liked it. And, and Ray's my favorite character, I think, potentially in all the Star Wars films that we now have. So I'm just excited to see her on her journey. And, you know, I was turning because I went with the Sawyers. Shock. But, I, I, you know, I was turning over to Jacob when all these things were happening with, with Ray and Kylo Ren. And I'm like, are we supposed to be shipping them? So, you know, who knows about that? But I I doubt that we're going to go down the route of, of turning him over because I think he had that chance and it didn't work out. So I feel like he might kick the bucket in the last uh, the last film. But I guess we'll see. So I liked it. And I don't think any I just, you know, like what you like, basically, and don't let other people dissuade you. Well, let me know. Write in and let me know uh, if you had any Christmas or holiday highlights, any gifts that you want to shout out to. And, yeah, whatever, what you think about uh, Yoda's seagull song. Well, I am by myself this time, as if you couldn't tell. In the next couple episodes, I'm going to be paired up with people for like the next four episodes, in fact. So uh, I'm getting in, you know, some alone time while I can. I actually may have gone overboard here because I just got on a Nightwing kick and I decided to knock a few issues out, especially since Oracle only appears briefly in all of them. So I'm just going to save the juicy Nightwing issues for later. Here's looking at you, Hunt for Oracle. So I'm just going to go through these. So these are really just those recap issues that I've done in the past. Some significant things happen, but with Oracle, not too much. So I'll explain a little bit about the story and what's going on and then what part Oracle plays. And, of course, if there are any shipping moments. So let's get into it. First off, we have Nightwing 24, The Forgotten Dead. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Scott McDaniel, inker Carl Story, and colorist Roberta Tooze. Dick is working his shift in Hogan's Alley, and he listens to Police Inspector Morgan, who is about to retire within the next few days. And Morgan's telling him about a cold case, and it's just that one in his career that he was never able to solve, and it really wears on him that he's about to retire and he couldn't solve it. And the case was about a shooting in which not only three of Eddie Min's boys died, but an innocent bystander was killed as well. And the last words of the dying old man sounded like the boy with no hair. So Nightwing works on this cold case and Oracle helps lead him first to Eddie Min and then looks at fingerprints on a bullet to ID the real perp. Now there are some minor shipping moments here between Oracle and Nightwing, mainly in their banter. Uh, Nightwing saying, you're a genius, and Babs returning, but you already knew that. And then later on, Nightwing going, you're beautiful, and then Oracle uh, saying, but you already knew that. So some shipping there. 
In Nightwing 25, The Boys, it was October 98 as the cover, same credits. Nightwing and Robin are on a training run, which this is actually a really lovely shipping story all in itself, as the platonic shipping or the familial shipping that I also like to do. So they're actually blindfolded on a train. I didn't even realize they were blindfolded until about halfway through. I just thought they were running on a train, which, you know, would be tricky all on its own. But no, they've got to be blind too. So anyways, they're blindfolded on a train and they're discussing relationships. Robin is <laughs> discussing his relationship with Spoiler, who happens to be pregnant. Wait for that in a few moments. And then Nightwing and his myriad relationships. And Robin actually brings up Babs, but Nightwing doesn't say anything. Like, he's actually going through the others and, and making a comment about them, but Babs he doesn't say anything, which I thought was interesting. He even says that Huntress was a mistake. At the end of the issue, Robin presses him on Babs again, but it just doesn't work. And so I think that a lot is being said when nothing's being said, if that makes sense, because I just think his silence speaks volumes. So there's my shipping moment for there. In number 27 through 8, Live Not on Evil Part 1 and 2, January and February cover date of 1999, same credits as we've been seeing. Huntress is in town, and she's being used by Cisco Blaine to help him become the puppet master of all the unions in town. Meanwhile, Dudley Soames, backward head and all, is back and is calling himself Torque, which makes sense. Oracle here helps with ballistics, leading Nightwing to a specific gun in 27. And then in 28, Oracle wakes Nightwing up after he was knocked out by Huntress. She actually thought he was sleeping. And Oracle tells him all the notes left behind at the crime scenes and murders were palindromes. I do wonder about, you know, thinking about this with the the comms and everything, I wonder whether Nightwing's comms are open to anyone, anyone on the Bat family anyways, or if he just leaves the line open for Oracle, since she's just so easily able to reach him. And I'm not really sure how comms work. I guess they operate on a particular frequency, so potentially anyone who's tapping into that one could reach him. But it's just interesting that she could pop in whenever, and I wonder if that's true for everybody else. In issue 29... Nightwing and Helena have a conversation about their previous relationship. And Nightwing wishes he knew then what he knows now. Uh, This is actually a pretty... He's very blunt with her, which is a little awkward even as a reader. And if he knew what he knows now, he wouldn't get within 10 blocks of her. Uh, So this was both comforting and curious, since they will soon have a romantic relationship during No Man's Land. So you kind of wonder about that. So that just seems to be really out of continuity. Looking forward to that. And then issues 27 through 29, I think, you know, certainly give credence to what Donovan keeps accosting me about, uh, that being Helena's untrustworthiness and why Batman, now Nightwing, don't trust her but i think it seems that tim is a little on the fence about it like me so donovan give me a break you know even tim your beloved tim i think tries to see the best in her so those are all my nightwings as you can see i really skipped ahead several months but like i said i got on a kick and want to go through those and oracle didn't play too significant a role but of course whatever she touches turns to gold My final issue that I want to go through quickly was Robin 58, The Stranger. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Staz Johnson, inker Stan Walk, and colorist Adrian Roy. The cover date was October 1998. 
Stephanie Brown tells Robin that she is now pregnant for about two months and intends to keep the baby. And Robin's a little confused because he just kissed her, but promises to help her with anything she might need. And later, Robin's in the Batcave with Batman and they talk about the last escapees of Blackgate, which also include the Clue Master, which of course there's a connection there with Stephanie Brown. Batman uses the Red Bird, and Robin does his work in the cave and also talks to Oracle about the messed up situation with his girlfriend. The next day in school, two of Tim's friends also tell him how they spotted a giant monster in an abandoned block of buildings the previous night, and they attempt to go there again. Tim wants to figure out a way to keep them away so he can investigate as Robin. Later on, Robin goes, and he finds that the boy's went without, well, basically not listening to him, and they've now been kidnapped by one of Blackgate's escaped inmates, Steeljacket, so there's a nice little connection back to Batman and what he was saying. There's an interesting moment, it might have been in this one, but it could have been in 57, where his two friends, or three friends, I guess, are arguing about Star Wars canon and the books and everything, and I just thought that was very interesting, not only with, you know, me reading these books, both the canon now and Legends, and just, I guess... Nerd wars that happen. It's actually good to read the two preceding issues before this so you can get a lead up and see Robin and Steph grow closer because they're hanging out, going on fighting dates and things like that. And then Tim is also considering what to do with Ariana. And they end up breaking up and it's mutual. And so I guess he's focusing on Steph. The big thing I think is that Robin who knows Oracle is Babs, but not vice versa, goes to her for advice. And I think that that means something there and establishes a sense of intimacy. And please don't mistake me, I'm not saying that it's a romantic intimacy, but I certainly think that they've developed a really great bond and and great trust as we've seen them interact together over the interwebs, um, starting really with Legacy. Yes, starting with Legacy. And so, you know, for him to go to Oracle and not necessarily... Nightwing is 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 pretty interesting. I do have a question though, uh, something that p- potentially Donovan. I would like to hear Donovan's feedback on this. But anyone who is a Tim Drake fan, do you think that Tim was technically cheating on Ariana? I mean, he's he's dating her. I know it's sort of locked down. It seemed like there were some some problems there, and the the parents didn't necessarily trust him, so they were watching him. But he's also you know going out. Uh, on fighting escapades with Steph and they're sharing kisses and things like that and so even though he's sort of split personality I guess and acting as two different people is he cheating on Ariana Uh, so what do you think about that I feel like because this has happened a lot you know we've got Bruce Wayne potentially dating somebody and uh, Batman maybe dating somebody you've got spider-man as peter parker and spider-man as but you know so uh i feel like unless they really have some ability to split their personas that it's they're being unfaithful to one of those parties and that they should try to uh just be consistent in in uh in their dating life but that's just me. So let me know what you think about that. But I guess it doesn't matter because Ariana broke up with Tim. So now Tim can be with Steph. So there you go. Well, that's all I have for those. Just really quick and showing uh, what Oracle is doing. We'll be seeing more of Oracle <laughs> shortly, of course, with uh, some Justice League appearances. And, well, yeah, 
That's basically what I'll be doing in the next few months. So it should be exciting. Well, now on to listener emails. Mail Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. I have a couple listener emails from the anniversary, the eighth anniversary, of course, and it was episode 150. It was the part one where we review the comics. Don, which is odd since he was, of course, the one who was on the episode uh he says dag i didn't think the batman adventures issue was that bad i actually really liked it but i love that entire series and think it did no wrong i'm pretty sure barbara was faking getting weirded out so she could leave the room and turn into batgirl i didn't see that as legitimate the artwork is decidedly cartoony but i thought paroback's style fit the series and yes those characters totally looked like matt murdoch and karen page i'm a real fan of the series so if chris is going to be giving harmless issues like 26 <laughs> five out of 10s my heart won't be able to withstand a look back on the whole title and then chris responded i'm a fan too of the series and the creative teams i'm pretty sure this was just a speed bump for me thanks for writing yes indeed thanks for commenting on a segment not my own on an episode that you were actually on and then finally i have an email from the curmudgeon that everybody loves tom panarese this is in regards to episode 149 he says stella sorry this email is so late in coming but i want to write in about a few questions you raised in episode 149 on harley getting medicine for mr j even though she's dating ivy as I listened to this, I wondered if this is Harley basically falling back into old, bad habits. The Joker reminds me of an ex that won't go away. In other words, they've broken up, and yet they still associate with one another. Furthermore, their association is toxic, but for whatever reason, they can't let one another go. It honestly reminds me of Dante and Caitlin and Clerks. She treated him terribly and cheated on him eight and a half times how half uh, but he had this relationship with her and was actually willing to dump his current girlfriend to go out with her when it presented itself even though getting back with her was the worst idea possible i don't think harley will ever actually quit the joker on guy gardner and fire i can't remember in what context you mentioned guy gardner well, well probably that i didn't like him but it made me think of the one time they actually slept together sure that's what comes to your mind it happened at the end of guy gardner warrior number 25 and the opening night of guys bar warriors they both got very drunk of course and the beginning of issue 26 features them waking up in bed together in one of those did we just do what i think we did moments I would actually recommend reading a number of Guy Gardner <laughs> warrior issues from the 1990s, especially the issues written by Bo Smith. Bo Smith, if you recall, it always go it goes back to Shagalicious. Bo Smith wrote the uh, Batman Wildcat four-parter, and Shagalicious was on the show with me. So see, there's always a connection to Shag. They made him way more of a three-dimensional character than the one-note character he usually is. And our dearly missed friend, the late Sean Engel, covered the series and the 1990s Green Lantern series on his show, Just One of the Guys, which should still be available on the Two True Freaks Network. Finally, on how comics should be written with regards to jumping on points. I personally would like every ongoing series to have some sort of jumping on point in each issue, or at least enough in that issue for a reader to want to buy the issues before it and the issues after it. Writing for the trade makes reading from issue to issue tedious, especially when there are some issues where very little happens. 
but I don't think that swinging the pendulum the other way is a good idea either because it doesn't ensure that you'll have your readers picking up the next issue. I personally like the way that some of DC's better superhero titles were written in the 1980s and 1990s. There would be a main story and at least one or two subplots that would eventually take center stage. When you pick up a random issue of the Wolfman Perez Titans or Claremont X-Men, you might be confused at first as to who all the characters are or what had been going on in prior issues, but you could at least be entertained for 22 pages without feeling completely lost. They were very much like nighttime dramas or soap operas, and I think that benefited them. I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that there's a mean between the two extremes of compressed storytelling and writing for the trade, I think. Great episode as always, and happy 8th anniversary, Tom. Well, thank you, Tom. Yeah, I'm still, I'm trying to work my way through that. It's still something that I'm struggling with, and it's actually something I brought up on the Batman universe as well, because I think, as Josh said, we're we're sort of, it seems like we're moving away from reader-friendly things, and I think Marvel is doing all, their can, all they can to actually have so many points for readers, new readers to hop on because of those new number ones, which for people who have been reading since the series began are actually super obnoxious because you're like, oh my gosh, another new number one. I swear I have three new number ones for Captain Marvel. But anyways, I guess I, uh, I don't know. I just feel like in the past reading comics was easier, but now it's just so much more of an involved thing that it troubles me. It troubles me a little bit. And you want, you know, you don't want it to be the funny books, right? As my dad refers to it, you want some complicated storytelling and, and you can't necessarily do that with a jumping on point in every issue. But I think there are just some, it seems like we're really getting bogged down. And so you can't just jump on and figure out what's, uh, what's going on. Gone are those days, in my opinion. I also think, and, and I complain about this a great deal to Dustin on the Batman universe. And cause I know he doesn't like Marvel Comics as much. But Marvel, I think, does a wonderful thing where the beginning of the issues, and even I would say Image does this, maybe IDW, they have that page, right, that synopsizes, number one, what the whole book is about, you know, who the character is, and number two, what's been going on recently, which is great because, you know, maybe you know, month to month, you're reading so many books that it's hard to keep track of storylines. But DC doesn't do that. And sometimes it's just hard, you know, to keep track of of what's happening. I think especially of Batman Eternal, when that was coming out, and that was weekly, but there were because there were so many different storylines, if they would go from one to another, and the other one hadn't been shown for like three issues or so, especially like the supernatural one of the the first Eternal, I think it was with Spectre or whomever it was, or Corrigan. If you don't know what's happening, you just kind of have to go with it and try to pick up the pieces. But I just wish they had one of those little recap pages. Well, thanks for writing in. Remember, you can always uh, post on the Batman Universe dot net under the actual episode it's got a different format now so you can actually have a conversation if you choose to or you can write in backrolloracle at gmail.com be sure to answer that question do you think it's cheating if a superhero has a girl as the alter ego and a girl as the actual superhero is that cheating what do you think well i'm going to take a break and when i come back I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 17 and Batgirl number 18, a.k.a. Batgirl 70. Or do I say it's 70, a.k.a. 18? Who knows? But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring 
The Secret of Christmas by Ella Fitzgerald. It's not the glow you feel when snow appears. It's not the Christmas card you've sent for years. Not the joyful sound when I have to explain myself two things number one you were probably shocked because the intro song was the whole song <sighs> let me tell you that i do not like country music's my least favorite genre but that song has always been a personal favorite of mine i don't know why i think i <laughs> i don't know i think it was one of those songs that i used to sing to annoy somebody back in high school and Sometimes, unfortunately, karma, I suppose, you sing it so many times that actually you begin to enjoy it. So that's what happened to me. So when I thought of Steph being pregnant, I thought, I know just the song. And I just couldn't. It's a story. That one's like the perfect song, I think. Because aren't country songs almost all? I mean, you know, songs often tell stories. And I think um, that one just, you've got to listen to the whole thing in order to figure out what's going on. Secondly... Yes, I showed or played a Christmas song. I thought it was a good one. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald, lovely. I 
one of my favorite jazz singers, and I thought that was a good, perfect one for uh, once I get to the Batgirl issue. So here we go. Batgirl on the Birds of Prey, number 17, Manslaughter, Finale, Patient Zero. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artists Rohe Antonio, and colorist Marcelo Maiolo. At the Blackwell House, Batgirl, Harley, and Batwoman listen to the reasoning behind Patient Zero's hatred of men and her history. Patient Zero was born in 1918 during an outbreak of Spanish flu in Gotham. Others got sick around her while she remained resilient. Her father got money for allowing others to experiment on her, and she would later witness crime and pain at the hands of men, even though she did all she could to help others. She realized she should have been saving Gotham City instead. After story time, Batwoman questions Patient Zero's logic, since getting rid of men would inevitably cause the whole population to die out, but hey, she has a plan for that too. Later at City Hall, the rest of the team is wondering where our tied-up members are and making comments about corrupt politicians since the mayor was in on the daughters. Orphan and Ivy go to Leslie Tompkins so that she can help make the antidote. Back with Patient Zero, we see that Phase 1 was merely weakening the man's immune system and Phase 2 cleans the slate, which she demonstrates on three hapless victims. Meanwhile, the birds figure out where the daughters are by triangulating attacks and looking at history, of course. They infiltrate the daughters but are only able to take some of them down and free their teammates while others go off with Phase 2 to the stadium where all those sick men are. The birds rush to the stadium where Lois is waiting outside and tells him that Waller is planning to attack. Batgirl rushes to Waller and tells her to hold off the attack for a short amount of time while the birds try to help. Gotham Girl takes the antidote and uses her super speed slash flight to spread it to all the victims. And then shortly afterwards, the ex-mayor is shot by one of Waller's team. We see the result of the antidote on Gotham residents at the very end, and the men closest to the birds as Babs narrates the importance of love and respect for each other. Patient Zero is incarcerated. She's close to 100, so she's probably going to die in jail. And Renee updates the GCPD search parameters to include all gender identities since not all victims were male. There's a nice scene with all team members up on the roof, but the status quo team goes off once again to make the good stand out against the bad. Well, the big thing about this is getting the history of Patient Zero and why she went down this path. And I'm glad that that finally happened. This is a Patient Zero-focused issue, so we needed to see that. If we didn't, that would not have been good. It was okay. It was okay. I guess it certainly gives her motivations. Uh, We see there was something special about her. I wish we could have gone in a little bit more into that. We see that from the very beginning, you know, bad things are happening to her at the hands of men. You know, her father obviously selling her off for medical purposes and then the man experimenting on her. She tries to help out. Then all of the people are overseas fighting in the world wars. And when they come back, crime goes up again. So I, I guess it's reasoning. You know, some people can understand it, but you know, it's flawed reasoning. So it's 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 okay, but not the best. But with this, paired with this, I also also wish that we could have seen reasons of why others would choose to follow her, the daughters. They were just sort of this voiceless mass or, I guess, faceless mass, and I just wondered what were the purposes behind all of them. And it's very similar. I think this story is very similar to the victim syndicate that's going on right now with Detective Comics, uh, with the first victim and then the, the different people. 
And we still know next to nothing about them. We know that they were victims somehow of Batman, quote-unquote, helping the city. But we don't know much about it. And I think that there, you should. You should know more about the people that you're going up against to make the villains more interesting and engaging for the readers. That they're not just throwaways. So I'm disappointed about that. I liked that it brought... Patient Zero up to speed on the monster war that occurred last year. I can't remember what that was called. But that crossover between all the Bat titles, we see just that one panel. And then the Gotham Girl situation is also mentioned. The fact that she, if you don't know about Gotham Girl, some weird experimentation happened. Well, she and her brother opted for weird experimentation. They have superpowers, but each time they use it, they actually die a little bit. So at some point, she's going to die probably way before her time and so she actually brings that up to orphan and then you know of course she uses her superpower to spread the antidote so we know that uh that was a little risky so i i think you can definitely say overall that this book is staying closer to continuity than batgirl does so i do appreciate that here's another question for you to consider we've got the infidelity question <laughs> with tim and here's another is cleansing gotham officially a trope <sighs> so this was Interesting and distinct because we had this disease that was attacking men only. But then, of course, it went to the whole thing of we need to get rid of them and cleanse Gotham. And I just feel like I'm reading that all the time. I mean, primarily it's with Raish, and I think that's his trope that he's got his stamp of approval on. But it just seems like everyone wants to, not everyone, that was hyperbole, but really a lot of people want to cleanse Gotham. And, you know, I don't know. Because even uh Gotham Girl brings it up in this issue. She says that her brother wanted to in order to help Gotham he wanted to cleanse Gotham. And so, my goodness, is this really where we are that that villains this is the route to you know to help Gotham they need to basically wipe it clean? Is it a trope now? Should it maybe be shelved for a little bit and not used? I think so. What do you guys think? I'm not sure what Waller's plan was, you know, going in and Lois is freaking out about it. And then, of course, I guess she either sends that sniper to do the job anyways, even though she promised five minutes. But, hey, it's Waller. Nobody screws the wall. Or the sniper just went against her orders. Who knows? But don't you think the collateral damage would have been too high if Waller had sent her whole team in to get rid of the daughters? I mean, there are like several hundred thousand men in that stadium. So, right? Several thousand at least. So, yeah, I'm not really sure about that plan. I liked Wonder Woman practically doing a fastball special with Batgirl to get her up to the helicopter with Waller in it. Love that. And I liked the final pages especially. Just with the scenes between the loved ones and Gotham getting back to normal and then the final meeting of the team members with all the members and, you know, I think appreciating each other and then going off and then leaving us with the final three the main three so i really thought it ended on a high note i'm going to give this eight out of ten birds i think for me the story lost some of its spark from the first issue or of the first part of the story and i just feel like i've seen and read this before which i certainly have and and there are more questions that i have and details that i would have liked to have seen in order to really get on board potentially with the villains or at least be more engaged. I do think that overall this story addressed some major real-life issues, and I think these issues were dealt with in the comic book world, but they end with a lot of applicable positivity. So, you know, realism does occur in the comic books. Let's move on to something that's like completely opposite tone, and that's Batgirl number 70, a.k.a. Batgirl number 18, White Elephant. Writer Hope Larson, art Sammy Basri, and colorist Jessica Colleen. Babs is getting ready for a Christmas party for Alicia, 
or Alicia, when she rushes out to help someone being accosted by the rapper in the alleyway. And that's rapper with a W-R, though Batgirl does make a joke about R-A-P-P-E-R. Yeah, this is wonderful. This is great. A lot of people ask me because I'm a comedian. They always say, you know, is that a tough job to be a comedian? And I don't think it is. I I compare it to things I used to do. I used to work part-time as a rapper in a department store. So you bought a little gift and you need to get it wrapped. Well, I came here to tell you about that. We got red ribbon, blue, green, and white. Everybody going to have a packet tonight. Afterwards, she finishes getting ready, and she and Frankie head over to Chalet OK, Burnside's hipster bar du jour. On the way, Babs loses an eyelash and makes a resolution to be off men until the new year. Until the new year. Hmm. Unfortunately for Alicia, she has to share her party for Gordon Clean Energy with some anti-LGBTQ company that makes sense for rich people's homes called Smellacule. Yes, more ridiculous companies. Suddenly, Santa arrives and everyone is super excited, and I mean that. Santa releases a toxin into the air that will kill all exposed people in 24 hours, and oh yes, Santa turns out to be Harley Quinn, of course, and she says that the CEO of Smellacule, Mr. Bradley Burr, has to find the reason for the season in order to get the antidote. After Batgirl takes a selfie with Frankie and Alicia, the three of them, plus Burr, go to check out family, charity, and religion as the reasons for the season. Bradley's childhood home turns up nothing except a kind couple and a Santa suit full of raccoons, which made me LOL. Charity turns up an exploding turkey in an oven, and religion turns up a real camel getting stung by a large gadfly. Suddenly, Batgirl realizes that this was all a wild chase, a wild goose chase, of course, and Harley's reason for the season is gifts. Harley is back at the bar on the roof with the antidote. Alicia throws her shoe and hits Harley, who drops the antidote. You have to look very closely for the shoe thing and look at the details for this, but it's funny once you find it. Everyone gets the antidote. The employees that smell a cool quit and mount a suit against Burr, and Batgirl, Frankie, and Alicia have a happy ending. Next, the Burnside Blizzard of 2018. I actually really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was a lot of zany fun as only Harley could produce, and it has a deeper layer with a Christmas carol, though Harley didn't really teach Mr. Burr anything in the end, but his employees do. Speaking of his employees, I do wonder what sort of suit they could mount against him. If I have any lawyer, people, friends, listeners, please let me know. Perhaps because he made the company anti-LGBTQ, but... Were they condoning it in a way by being his employee? So I do wonder, or being being in his employee, I think would be a better way to phrase it. So I do wonder what that suit could potentially be. The rapper seems to be an original, even though there is someone by the name of rapper in the DC Heroes RPG, which I'm sure Shagalicious knows about. And this guy, he's perfect for the short intro, and he deserves to be amid the D-listers. Um, I just, I thought he was great, and he only needs those couple pages, so great job, Hobo Arson. I like the fact that uh, Frankie holds Babs accountable for all her awful relationships, and even, even Alicia joins in, so those two characters are clearly me. And then Babs is making a comment about, you know, not until the new year, and this makes me think that Larson is speaking for her, and there's going to be more to come 2018, which makes me gag a little bit, but, you know, I could just be reading into it. 
I was weirded out that everyone was going gaga for Santa. And, and besides the cover, I wouldn't have expected it was Harley. It was, there was that weird interaction with like that attractive blonde because clearly Santa was not interested in her. So you already knew something was off, but uh, it just didn't look like Harley at all. So it was, it was a surprise besides the cover. Harley really works well for this issue. I like that it's so crazy. I laughed a couple times out loud because of what goes on. Like I said, the raccoons, the bizarre Christmas pageant where Jesus zaps someone back in time. And of course, Alicia throwing a shoe at Harley, which um, was a detail. You've got to figure out what's going on, which might not be um, the best storytelling that you've got to like figure out and you have to look for the... You basically, because there's this one panel where something hits Harley and you've got to look around like, what was this? It's kind of like, where's Waldo? But hey, it worked. I'm glad Batgirl didn't think it a great idea to take Alicia and Frankie with her, which, you know, what do they really do anyways except add to the zaniness? And I'm glad that someone commented on taking a selfie, even though that was... uh, the bad guy who did it but Batgirl doesn't say it's not a good idea because of safety she says it's not a good idea because she's trying to have a more serious image yikes priorities here so some weird stuff going on there but I'm at least it was commented on finally I really liked the art in this issue I thought it fit the tone and the story and there are some really fun flares that Bosri adds like the fight with the silhouettes so I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10 just a fun holiday issue that seems just the right tone for Batgirl in general so be sure to pick this up and this is one of those you could absolutely hop onto this as a new reader and enjoy it and I think you could be a Batgirl fan and enjoy it as well well now over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review uh that's like already getting your 2018 vacation schedule approved for the dates of your planned comic convention schedule am I right thank you very much Stella Happy New Year to you and to the listeners. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures Review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. I'll try to keep this one short, going along with the theme of the episode, and I'm still a bit under the weather at the time of this recording. Based on the results of a Twitter poll, I'm reviewing the Batman Adventures title, based on the 90s hit animated series, from the beginning. Not just the Barbara Gordon Batgirl appearances, as I did with in my previous three segments. So, starting with this episode, I'll go back and start with Batman Adventures number one. Batman Adventures number one was cover dated October 1992 and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled Penguin's Big Score and was written by Kelly Puckett, penciled by Ty Templeton, who also did the cover artwork, inked by Rich Burchett, lettered by Timothy Harkins, and colored by Rick Taylor. This story has been reprinted in Batman The Collected Adventures Volume 1, a trade paperback that came out in 1993, another trade paperback called The Batman Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 2015, and as a giveaway in 2015's Batman Adventures Halloween Fest Special Edition. Our story opens in the Penguin's Lair, where he's educating his henchmen to each learn a new word. The lessons are suddenly interrupted by the arrival of an enormous package, which is revealed to be a large, interactive TV unit. The screen comes on, and we see the Joker on screen proposing a deal to the Penguin. The offer strikes at Penguin's vanity, something that would make the Penguin the most popular man in Gotham City, and thumb his nose at Batman, and in exchange... The Penguin would have to steal one item, not disclosed to the reader. Smash cut to the Penguin, pulling off a successful after-hours heist with his gang at First Gotham Bank, 
and Batman just missing him. The next day, the Penguin is a guest on a local TV show hosted by Valerie Vapid called Stars on Parade. There, the Penguin says he's gone straight, and he's a great humanitarian, and he's going to start giving large sums to various local charities. The broadcast is watched by Batman and Alfred in the Batcave. Batman surmises Penguin's been robbing and bankrupting Gotham's greatest philanthropists and using that money to take their places in high society. That night, at the Gotham Plaza Hotel, Bruce Wayne upstages the Penguin by trumping the Wily Bird's $1 million donation at the Policeman's Charity Banquet by donating $2 million. Sufficiently irked, the Penguin decides to strike back at Wayne by breaking into the Wayne Financial Institution. Over the next pages and panels, the Penguin is surprised how easy the job is going. The feeling is short-lived as Batman takes out members of his gang one by one until finally confronting Penguin in a vault. Batman coerces a confession from the Penguin because the Penguin thought he disabled all the cameras and recording devices. But Batman said he was able to reroute the camera feed and the Penguin's confession is caught on tape. Wah, 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 wah. Smash cut to Valerie Vapid announcing to her viewing audience that the Penguin's plan has been foiled. Foiled, smiled, says the Joker turning to us. The reader, he got what he wanted from the Penguin as he holds up a rolled piece of paper. The end. Question mark. A few comments. I remember when this issue came out, and this would be the first time we'd see what the animated version of the Penguin fully looked like in a story as this issue hit the comic shops before the Penguin appeared on an episode of Batman the Animated Series. The issue was released on September 8, 1992, corroborated by Mike's Amazing World of Comics website. And the episode, I've Got Batman in My Basement, which featured the Penguin as a villain, had an original air date of September 30, 1992. I'm not sure how other local comic shops displayed this title. At my local comic shop, this title was put with other kid-friendly books in a separate section, and not with the mainstream DC books. I can see that. That said, I think this was a series that could be appreciated for all ages. I don't think it was written in such a way where the words were written in a more simplistic style. Also, though I don't have the sale numbers, I don't think this, as like other books based on animated series, perhaps thought to be primarily aimed at kids, had as large of a print run as those of Deesty's mainstream books. As for the story itself, this was a good opening issue. Unlike some number one first issues, even with an established character, we have no origin story here. Not sure it's really necessary. We get a story right out of the gate and a full feel for the events that are happening in the Batman animated universe. Puckett's writing is solid, he doesn't talk down to the audience, and the principal characters are depicted as you would expect. Templeton's artwork is fantastic as a fit for this book. The facial expressions are excellent, the backgrounds were evocative of the animated series, and he renders a perfectly angled Batman. As with the then somewhat recent movie of the time, Batman Returns, we see the Penguin with a gloved claw-like hand, and in the next issue we'll see another slight Bat character alteration taking a page from the same film. We also had something of a cliffhanger, I like that. Just what did the Penguin steal for the Joker? And how will this come into play in the next or future issues? Hey, a reason to come back for more. All in all, a very good opening issue, and I will give this 8 out of 10 bats. A 
couple of quick side comments. If you were a fan of the Batman 66 show and or the animated Batman the Brave and the Bold animated series, you may want to check out the recently released Scooby-Doo and the Batman Brave and Bold DVD that was released this past January 9th. Along with Scooby and the gang, there are appearances of Aquaman, Outrageous! And Black Canary, Martian Manhunter, Plastic Man, The Question, and Detective Chimp. Hey, sounds right up Dustin's alley. They team up to take on the mysterious Crimson Cloak. You will see the Scooby gang in some bat-related costumes. Plus, there are numerous cameos of many C and D list villains like Mr. Camera and Mr. Polka Dot, a.k.a. the Polka Dot Man. That's about as far as I'll go with spoilers. The vocal cast is excellent. I did have some minor quibbles, but I would give this a solid 8 out of 10 bats. Next, a new segment within my segment, Nightwatch, where I will take a quick peek at the Nightwing title, starting with the current issue, number 36. No shipper alert. Nightwing does make contact with a woman who jumps off a building to rescue her. However, there is no, repeat no, shipping alert. This concludes this segment of Nightwatch. I got some feedback on my last segment from Donovan Morgan Grant for the review of Batman Adventures number 26. Donovan writes, Dag, I didn't think the Batman Adventures issues was that bad. I actually really liked it, but I loved that entire series, and I think it did no wrong. I'm pretty sure Barbara was faking getting weirded out so she could leave the room and turn into Batgirl. I didn't see that as legitimate. The artwork is decidedly cartoony, but I thought Parabic's style fit the series. And yes, those characters totally look like Matt Murdock and Karen Page. I'm a real fan of the series, so if Chris is going to be giving harmless issues like number 26, 5 out of 10s, my heart won't be able to withstand a look back on this whole title. <laughs> Aw. Well, first off, I'd like to thank Donovan for writing in, and you bring up some great, great points. I think what soured me on the last issue were a few things. The scene where Babs seemed to be sick, sickened by the crime scene photos, which I interpreted as the real thing and not faking it. And Donovan's point does seem credible and plausible. And that her character seemed to be regressing a bit as a proficient crime fighter instead of improving. And I just didn't care for the villain or the threat that was posed in this issue. Please, please don't think I don't like this title. I think there were issues at the original time of this series run, there were some of the better produced Batman comics that were on the rack, and that these stories still hold up pretty well. I think it's a safe bet that the score I gave will probably be one of the rare times I'm going to give a low grade for a particular issue. I'd also like to give Donovan a shout-out and a plug. Donovan did some excellent editorial articles on the Batman Universe website a couple months back, focusing on Tim Drake, and you can find some links there where Donovan and Josh Bertoni provide audio commentaries, most recently on the Batman animated series episode, The Underdwellers. Listeners, please be sure to check those out. Speaking of the Batman Universe website, please consider lending your support to the website that provides excellent content of Batman-related news, reviews, editorials, and other fine, fine podcasts. You can support the Batman Universe via Patreon by following a link on the Batman Universe homepage or by making a one-time donation of any amount you choose on a separate link on the homepage website. Thank you very much for your support. Shout out to Stella. Along with this show, check her out on the Batman Universe Comics Podcast and the Required Reading Podcast. Shout out to the Sutherlands. Check out Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and their new podcast called Sensational Sleuths. 
Shout out to Jerry Green, where you can find his written reviews of Batgirl, Birds of Prey, and Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica on the TBU website. And check Jerry out on the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, where you can also find me. On the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, we'll review trade paperbacks featuring Batman and related characters. I hope you'll give it a try if you're not already. Listeners, if you wish to contact me directly by email, you can reach me at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And you can find and follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at BTO and BatBooks. Thank you very much for your support. What duo numerically themed villain does not appear in Batman Adventures number two, and why? What feline femme fatale does appear in Batman Adventures number two, and why? What is the Joker planning, and when will those sinister plans come to light? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast, where the answers to these big, bold, brash, baffling, bizarre, boisterous, brazen, bombastic, bygone bonkers will be debunked next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Well, I mentioned on Twitter, if you're not following me on Twitter, it's at Backward Oracle, but I mentioned that I was going to be doing a new segment called Anime Watchlist. So what this is going to be is basically I'm going to give you a recommendation for an anime to watch. And I'm going to give you a film recommendation and a series recommendation. And then also, so I'll tell you a little bit about it. And then I will also pair it with, if you're a first time anime watcher, you, it'll be okay for you. And if you're seasoned one, maybe you should do that, but not the first timer. I know that anime is not for everyone, which I'm still sort of, trying to work out because I don't know I guess I just get confused at why some people don't like anime and there are certain types and styles of anime that I don't like but some people just wholeheartedly say I hate anime so I'm kind of still trying to work through why people don't like it Um, so if you are one of those people please let me know why you don't like anime I'm just trying to figure it out and also I guess you'll want to skip through this a little bit about me with anime. I, with series and shows, uh, shocker, I try to find ones that are um, shipper. They're more like drama romance. Zany ones, I like. Uh, they can't be too crazy. I don't really like fantasy ones, so I have seen a couple. I like ones primarily that occur in school, which is odd. But yeah, those are my favorite ones. So here we go, and I will say that. I'll probably be saving. I actually, there's a special that I want to do with a friend that I recently made here uh, where I want to go through Miyazaki's films. Um, But he's, man, Kiki's Delivery Service is my number one anime film. But anyways, so let me go through this. So first I'll, I'll tell you the film that I think that you should watch. And it's Koei no Katachi. English title is A Silent Voice. And this came out in 2016. And uh, it's being lauded everywhere i would say and i think they're actually going to be doing one of those um fathom events sometime soon but anyways uh so this is what it's about as a wild youth elementary school student shoya ishida sought to beat boredom in the cruelest ways when the deaf shoku nishimiya transfers into his class shoya and the rest of the class thoughtlessly bully her for fun however when her mother notifies the school he is singled out and blamed for everything done to her with shoku transferring out of the school shoya is left at the mercy of his classmates he is heartlessly ostracized all throughout elementary and middle school while teachers turn a blind eye now in his third year of high school 
Shoya is still plagued by his wrongdoings as a young boy. Sincerely regretting his past actions, he sets out on a journey of redemption to meet Shoko once more and make amends. Koe no Kotache tells the heartwarming tale of Shoya's reunion with Shoko and his honest attempts to redeem himself, all while being continually haunted by the shadows of his past. I think that this is a new watcher. It's new watcher friendly because it's not like whack. There's not wacky stuff that's going on. And I think it's, it's real. I mean, the stuff that they're, they're getting at, you know, bullying. There are a couple suicide attempts. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil, but I mean, there's some like deep stuff that's going on, but it's also heartwarming and uh, you might get, might get choked up a little bit. So I really recommend this and I think it deserves very much the praise that's that's coming to it. And p- potentially you're lucky and you've got one of those theaters that has the Fathom events and you can go see this whenever it, it comes to that. On the opposite side of the tonal spectrum, we uh, for my series, I decided to go with, I just finished this uh, recently, Kaicho Wa Made Sama, and this was a 2010 series, there are 26 episodes, one OVA, OVA is, I can't remember, I used to know what OVA stood for, um, but basically it's like a side episode that, it's not out of continuity, but it's like kind of a one-shot if you will. Um, it doesn't necessarily add to the storyline in the other one, but it has the same characters and stuff. Once an all-boys school, Seika High, infamous for its rowdy students, has recently become a co-ed school. However, with the female population still remaining a minority, even after the change over the recent years, Misaki Ayuzawa works hard to make the school a better place for girls. She puts a lot of effort into academics and athletics and earns the trust of the teachers. Eventually, she becomes the first female student council president. Misaki has gained a reputation among the male student body as a strict boy-hating demon dictator and as a shining hope for the teachers and fellow students. However, despite her reputation, she secretly works part-time at a maid cafe in order to support her ill mom and sister. I don't remember her mom being sick in the anime, but they do they don't have as much money because her father left them. So, that's true of the anime. Um the ill mom and sister might be true of the manga. Unfortunately, Misaki's secret is soon discovered by Takumi Usui, a popular boy at Seika High. Instead of exposing it to the school, though, Usui keeps it for himself and even becomes a regular at the cafe, much to Misaki's chagrin. And, of course, uh, we see this development of the friendship, which, you know, she always yells at him and says she hates him. Um, But you can tell clearly something's going on, and uh, he very much cares for her and tries to save her from certain situations. And then at the very end, well, I shan't spoil it. This was, this is probably not new watcher friendly, if only because it is wacky. I don't know, I'm trying to think if it's as wacky as Uran High School Host Club, but there are crazy things that go on. And one of the things that cracks me up about um, anime is like when, I don't they're like the the colors that they use on their faces, like if they're annoyed or, you know, it'll turn blue or... If they blush, you know, their faces will turn red. So there are just some crazy things go on. And she actually, like, when she's yelling at the boys in the school to, like, clean up, she does, like, 
Um, she's animated as having like two little horns and they get really freaked out about it. But there's like crazy, crazy stuff that goes on in here. But it was a lot of fun. And this had been on my list for a while because I knew that there was uh, some shipping. Because sometimes I find animes by looking up shipping videos. And so if I like the style and I feel a little, you know, butterfly in my chest <laughs> by watching it, I, I write it down. So I've got this little watch list. So maybe not new watcher friendly, but a lot of fun. If you like to Uran, I, I would say it's in that same sort of uh, wacky category. So there you go. Movie and a series that I recommend. Okay, and now on to my literature recommendation. I read 139 total books in 2017. Unfortunately, I was beat by Tom Panarese, the curmudgeon that everybody loves. I think he had 152 or 154. I don't know how he did it, but he pulled out like 20 in the last few days. It was sick, and I don't recommend competing with him in a reading contest ever again. So anyways, 139 total books in 2017. Picked some of the ones uh, that I was reading towards the end. First of all, The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. The Glass Castle is a remarkable memoir of resilience and redemption and a revelatory look into a family at once deeply dysfunctional and uniquely vibrant. When sober, Jeanette's brilliant and charismatic father captured his children's imagination, teaching them physics, geology, and how to embrace life fearlessly. But when he drank, he was dishonest and destructive. Her mother was a free spirit who abhorred the idea of domesticity and didn't want the responsibility of raising a family. The Walls children learned to take care of themselves. They fed, clothed, and protected one another and eventually found their way in New York. Their parents followed them, choosing to be homeless, even as their children prospered. I've heard from people who read this that the film is not as good. So, if you saw the film and didn't like it, you might want to read this, but if you read this, you might not want to see the film. I do have to say that it is both funny and startling. And there's a transition point where Jeanette, as narrator, she's very much enamored with her father, and so her perspective on things are brighter sort of nonchalant but then once that transition happens where like she starts to understand what's happening then um the way the situations are presented are even worse so it's there are some really bad things that go on there i would but it was very interesting I also read Star Wars The Last Padawan and Kanan that's volumes one and two by Greg Weissman in Star Wars Rebels, Kanan Jarrus is a cocky, sarcastic renegade fighting the Galactic Empire alongside the ragtag crew of the Ghost. But years before, during the Clone Wars, he was known as Caleb Doom, a Jedi Padawan training under Master Depa Balaba. Neither Master nor Apprentice ever suspected that their loyal clone troopers would turn on them under the issuing of Order 66, the Emperor's directive to execute all Jedi. How did Caleb Doom escape the Jedi Purge? How did he learn to survive on his own after his master fell? And how did he become the man we know as Kanan Jarrus? What can a Padawan do when being a Jedi makes him a target? Join young Caleb for a tale that bridges the years between the Clone Wars and Rebels. Uh, so this was obviously a comic adaptation, but I had this on my wish list and then waited for a Star Wars sale on Comixology, and I really recommend this, especially if you're a fan of Rebels. And then another comic I read in preparation for The Last Jedi was Captain Phasma, what uh, by Kelly Thompson. What happened to Captain Phasma after Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens? Kelly Thompson and artist Marco... Chichetto, wow. Uh, expand Captain Phasma's story and reveal how she escaped the destruction of Starkiller Base. It's a stunning lead into this winter's blockbuster big screen Star Wars film, and everything you need to know is right here. I recommend it. Of course, uh, if you really needed any indication that 
Phasma was uh, bloodthirsty and ready to protect her own interests. Book no further than her own book and this. And finally, oh, sorry, that that was a lie. Uh, Copperhead, there are three volumes out, and I'm all caught up now. Uh, they're written by Jay Faber. Welcome to Copperhead, a grimy mining town on the edge of a backwater planet. Single mom Clara Bronson is the new sheriff, and on her first day, she'll have to contend with a resentful deputy, a shady mining tycoon, and a family of alien hillbillies. And did we mention the massacre? Questions swirl around not only the murder mystery, but around Sheriff Bronson herself. What brought her to a place like Copperhead? Is she running from something or toward something? So Jay Faber writes this comic called Elsewhere, and it's basically like a what-if Amelia Earnhardt situation. You know, what if she, in being lost, went into like another dimension kind of thing, and or another timeline. And so I... I've been reading this. I took a chance on that. I haven't liked it. And then I saw that he had written this, and this looked interesting, um, sort of sci-fi western, so I decided to give it a shot and really liked it. Again, comicsology sale. And I, yeah, I marathoned, I guess, the first three volumes, so I'm all caught up, and, and I'm going to keep following along, so I really recommend that. Now, finally, here we go. Two Brothers by Gabrielle Ba and Fabio Moon. And if you remember, they wrote Day Tripper, which I recommended, uh, yikes, maybe last year or so. Twin brothers, Omar and Yaqib, may share the same features, but they cannot be more different from one another. And the possessive love of their mother, Zana, stirs the troubled waters between them even more. After a brutally violent exchange between the young boys, Yaqib, the good son, is sent from his home to Braz- in Brazil to live with relatives in Lebanon, only to return five years later as a virtual stranger to the parents who bore him, his tensions with Omar unchanged. Family secrets engage the reader in this profoundly resonant story about identity, love, loss, deception, and the dissolution of blood ties. Just like Day Tripper, a real thinker, and this is certainly not an upper of a story, but it was uh, really good, and and this pair of creators and brothers uh, are, are amazing, absolutely. So there you go. You got anime that you could potentially watch, and now you have some books and comics you could potentially read. Well, that's it. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher in case you're not an iTunes sort of person. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backrolltheoracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and support the Batman Universe, and by extension, you are supporting Backroll the Oracle by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, put down your devil's juice and fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>